We continue in our study of the book of Galatians, in which we have been going verse by verse, as is our custom. There are benefits and difficulties to such an approach, but that's okay. We should not suppose that studying the Word of God would be easy, or that there would be no difficulties. I think we should have an expectation that hard work is involved. I have mentioned that one of the difficulties that I face is that you don't get to skip over the parts you don't want to deal with. You don't get to skip the difficult parts, but in fact have to deal with them. But I must confess that the benefits far outweigh any difficulties we may face. The primary benefit is that we study the Bible, we study scripture as it was written, and in my opinion, as it is to be understood. Um, I like to read. I think I have most of my life. I enjoy reading fiction, nonfiction. Um, And I've often wondered what it would be like to pick up a novel and read it the way that many people read the Bible. Sort of start in the second half and read a page or a paragraph and then go over here and read that. And what would that be like? Now, granted, when you've read a good book, when you've read a good novel, there may be portions that you want to reread, but that's after you've read the whole book. You have a sense of what's going on. And I fear that many Christians have never read the Bible from beginning to end. And even those who do, really, I think, oftentimes don't have a sense of context of what's being said in a particular place and why. In going verse by verse, we have, I believe, a real sense of what the author intended and what the original audience, whom it was written to, uh, how they understood what was being written. And so I think it is the way to study scripture. Now, one of the secondary benefits of going verse by verse as we do is that I have the opportunity to correct my mistakes or perhaps a wrong emphasis. Let's be clear about one thing in case you didn't know this. I do, in fact, make mistakes when I preach. And I don't mean grammatical mistakes, though there are those aplenty, trust me, or misspeaking, saying Paul when I mean Abraham, but real mistakes. I am not perfect, and therefore my sermons, by definition, are flawed. And that's why you have the responsibility, you have the duty to listen carefully and by the Spirit to discern as much as possible what is true and what is correct. In fact, your part in this is just as important as mine. Because you are, like me, imperfect, you are fallen Perfection is not something we will attain in this life. Now, this doesn't mean we should just throw our hands up and say, what's the use? You know, throw our hands up in futility as though, well, if I can't perfectly understand the Bible, then what's the point? Rather, we should work. We should strive all the harder to understand what our Creator, what our Redeemer, what our Father has to say to us. By the way, in the same way, you can make the analogy that You can take a lifetime to get to know someone and still, in some sense, not know them. And after you've been with someone for years and years, you're like, what was that about? I mean, I I thought I knew you. Um, You don't throw your hands up and say, well, that's it, since I don't know you. What about knowing ourselves? Sometimes we do things and we just sort of like, "What, what was I thinking when I did that? Perfect understanding is not required. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, you might be reviewing 
the sermons from the past weeks and wondering what grievous error I made that requires such an introduction. I've mentioned a number of times in this series that Paul uses stories in this letter. He chooses to tell his story, the story of the Galatians, of Abraham, of the curse, of the promise, of the law, and of the coming of faith. And then I said that having done that in the first three chapters, in chapter four, he begins to make his argument to the Galatians as to why they are wrong to desert the one who called you by the grace of Christ. As much as to say the first three chapters are stories, and then in chapter four we get to sort of the meat of the matter. And yet, as I study further, I've, I've come to conclude that Paul, in fact, is still telling a series of stories. He hasn't left that behind at the end of chapter 3. In chapter 4, the first seven verses, we have the story of the heir, or if you wish, the second exodus. <coughs> and here Paul deals with issues of slavery, redemption, and inheritance, the full rights of sons. And then in verses 8, 9, and 10, which we looked at last week, he tells the story of the Galatians, part 2. I mentioned last week that if you had a chance to sit down and read Galatians out loud in one sitting, verses 8, 9, and 10 would remind you of the first seven verses of chapter 3, the first part of the Galatians story, or what's wrong with the story. You know, Paul wants to know what's happened to them. Verse 11, which we did not look at last week, serves as a bridge of sorts to the next passage in which we have the story of Paul and the Galatians. Up to this point, it's been the story of Paul, the story of the Galatians. But now we come to the story of Paul and the Galatians together. Verse 11, Paul says, I fear that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. And here's the connection now between the apostle and the Galatians. Then we will see in a few minutes, verses 12 through 20, the story of Paul's first contact with the Galatians and their response to him. But before we look at the passage, I would just remind you of some of the things we found in previous passages. Um, I, I don't want you to think that somehow stories are only about a narrative, that a story tells a story and that it doesn't necessarily have any profound truths in it. I think we see stories as childish, uh, and that the real stuff, theology, doctrine, yeah, you tell the stories, but then here's the meat. The story is almost sort of what you give to children, but then abstract thinking requires that you be outside the story. Um, but somehow a story cheapens it. If somebody tells a story to get a point across, it, it, it loses something. Um, I think this is wrong, and it is, in fact, because of when and where we live. With the rise of modernity, in which facts are oftentimes seen as standing alone, usually without context, I mean, two plus two is four, doesn't require a story to support it, that's the way we think of facts, that facts stand on their own. Postmodernity has overcorrected and has embraced stories there are as many stories as there are storytellers, but none of them have authority. And so we have come to think of stories in the modern age as childish, and the postmodern age as having no authority whatsoever on our lives. In reality, this is how God has chosen to convey his truth to us. As we saw at the beginning, or the first part of chapter 4, 
Paul's answer to the men from Jerusalem does not rest on the abstract concept of faith and justification, but on the reality of the nature of God, that God is Trinity, the triune God. It was the Father who sent the Son. It was the Son who reached maturity, no longer needing a pedagogue. A pedagogue. Um, and he reached that at the time set by the Father. And it is the Father who sends the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba Father. This is the foundation upon which Paul builds. Um, it is, in fact, to be the foundation upon which we should build. And not merely our beliefs, to say, well, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but the way that we live our lives. Trinity is not merely a creedal formulation. We saw last week that the word Trinity is not even found in the Bible. And so it is something that the church has created as a form of shorthand to describe the nature of God. When we read what Paul has to say, he speaks about what each member of the Trinity has done, is doing, and will do. And how we are supposed to live in the light of these truths. Some might object that this really, if, that I'm, I'm spending far too much time on this. After all, don't we hear people say, well, God, however you conceive of him or her. Uh, as though somehow it is up to us to decide what the nature of God is. Let's stop and think a moment. If God created the world, and God, uh, the creation is a reflection of the creator, it is a revelation of who the Creator is, um, then I don't think we have the freedom to create God in our own image. We don't. God is triune. When it comes to the matter of our redemption, our adoption, becoming the children of God, it certainly is not up to us to determine how we want God to be. And as Paul comes to the second story here in chapter 4, the second story of the Galatians, we find out how important Trinity is. Look, if you would, at verse 8 in the beginning of verse 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who are by nature, or who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God. So I said last week, knowing God is what the Christian faith is all about. Jesus said to the Father in John 17, This is eternal life, that they may know you. And the promise in Jeremiah 31, No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Also, we've seen that knowing in the Bible is very different than what we see in the modern and postmodern ages. It involves relationship. It involves a certain intimacy. It is used to describe the sexual union between a husband and wife. It is in the modern age where fact and value have been separated, something quite different. And if we're not careful when we read about knowing God or God knowing us, we will think in terms of information, of facts. Oh, this is what I know about God, rather than I have an intimate relationship with God. By the way, we've, we are drifting from modernity to postmodernity, and it is argued in the postmodern age that you can't really know anything at all. 
And so if you can't really know anything at all, then how can you know God and how can God know you? So it's, it's just sort of gibberish. It would just sort of feel good about the whole business. Both of these are against the biblical way of knowing, and particularly the reality of redemption, of knowing God and of being known by God. The call to find true freedom in knowing and being known by the triune God is what Paul is writing about. So I mentioned at the end last week, the life of devotion and praise, worshiping and adoring the true God, whose character and actions we can never study enough. That the more we study scripture, the more we know of God, and not merely information, but of relationship. So I mentioned, again, verse 9, Paul seems to correct himself, now that you know God, or rather are known by God. See, what really matters is not our knowledge of God, but God's knowledge of us, because our knowledge is small, feeble, partial, and let's face it, pathetic. It seems to go up and down with our moods and our feelings. If that's what made a person a Christian, what they knew of God, uh, we would really be on very unstable ground. What matters is that God has known us. And not that he knows about us, that he knows when we were born and how long we will live, but that he knows us. He has established a bond with us. We have become his children. We are in relationship with God. He calls us his family. So Paul puts the choice to the Galatians as he tells their story a second time. Um, do you want to continue in this freedom of knowing and being known by God? Or do you want to be like the Israelites who are in the wilderness, always sort of pulling back? I want to go back. I want to go back. It's staggering that these people who had been slaves for over 400 years suddenly find it something desirable. Well, either we choose to follow God as he has revealed himself, or we go back to the old way. And I would argue that even when we follow, we choose to follow God, there's always that pulling within us to go back to idolatry, to go back to a false God, something that we think we can manipulate. I think that's one of the things, in many ways, if I could speak frankly, that's so unsatisfying about God that we can't manipulate him. We can't get him to do what we want him to do. Uh, we prefer idols because oftentimes they give us the illusion that we have control. What Paul tells the Galatians is, make sure you are worshiping the true God. It isn't simply a matter of breaking the commandments. I think oftentimes we think as Christians, oh, did you sin? Did you break one of the commandments? Um, that's not a small thing, and I'm not saying that it is. But the issue is, are you following God? Are you following an idol? It is at this point that Paul brings the two stories together, his story and that of the Galatians. As I mentioned earlier, verse number 11 serves as a bridge between the two passages. Perhaps more than that, it's where the two stories come together. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. If you could sit down and read Galatians aloud in one sitting, or if you have a particularly strong memory, this verse should remind you of something earlier in the book, in chapter 3, when Paul tells the Galatians story. He says, 
have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? In other words, did you waste your time? Did you waste your efforts? Have I wasted my efforts? And it is here at this point of you wasting your efforts, me wasting my efforts, that the story comes together of Paul and the Galatians. Look, if you would, at verses 12 through 20. I'll read them through and then we will look at them. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people who are zealous to win you over, but are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Let's begin with verse number 12, in which Paul writes, I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. Of all the verses in this passage, um, this is the most difficult grammatically, and there are grammatical puzzles in the Greek through this passage. It is, in fact, one of the more difficult ones here in Galatians. Um, I like what one translation has, where Paul says, put yourselves in my place, for I have put myself in yours. But what does he mean? As he begins the section, Paul wants to make it clear that this is a personal appeal to the Galatians. Okay? It is an appeal to resume their relationship with him, which has been adversely affected by these men from Jerusalem who have told them that Paul has not told you the truth. Paul wants the Galatians to be as frank and loving with him as he has been with them, because he has... He says, you have done me no wrong. There are questions as to whether or not Paul is being ironic here. And certainly Paul did use irony in his other writings. There is, in fact, a book on the book of Galatians by Mark Nanos called The Irony of Galatians. I don't think, for all of Paul's irony, I don't think he's being ironic here. I think he's being straightforward. Um, but let's see as the passage unfolds. Now in verse 13, Paul begins her story. As you know... It was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. If you look at the book of Acts, it talks about Paul's missionary journeys. And in Acts 14, we have the story of when Paul went to Galatia. Um, there is no mention whatsoever of Paul being ill or having a physical ailment of any type that was the cause of him going to Galatia. The fact that Luke doesn't mention this in Acts shouldn't trouble us. The account in Acts is not exhaustive. It doesn't claim to be. In fact, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives a sort of a catalog list of all the things he has suffered, and many of those are not found in the book of Acts. So what we have here, which to me makes it all the more fascinating, is Paul talking about something that we don't find recorded elsewhere in the New Testament. It's a piece 
of the puzzle that is added to the story of the early church in the New Testament. What Paul writes here, the Galatians know about. So he doesn't sort of you know, spell it out the way I sort of wish he would have, because I don't know what happened, but they did. That somehow, when Paul came to Galatia, there was something wrong with him. The NIV has illness. Uh, the King James has infirmity of the flesh. Uh, the English Standard Version has a bodily ailment. Um, and based on what we find in Paul's writings, I don't think it's illness, what the NIV has. Um, particularly if you look at verse number 15, I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Um, that's sort of a strong statement. And so it's just an assumption on my part, but I would say that something was wrong with Paul physically that you, couldn't, you could see that there was something wrong with him and maybe something wrong with his eyes. Because at the end of the book, he will say, see how I've written, and he writes in big letters, and one might say, because he didn't have glasses as we do today or contacts, that he had bad eyesight. Whatever it was, I would say that as Paul gets to Galatia, he's not in good shape. And that his physical appearance is very off-putting that this is not someone that you would want to sit and listen to. Uh, because you'd have to look at him, so maybe you would sort of look down rather than looking at him. But there's something about this man that was quite disturbing. But it didn't bother the Galatians. Verse 14. Even though my, and it's not illness, I think his bodily ailment was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcome me as if I were an angel, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. If we take Paul's condition to be an ailment rather than an illness, then we could say that whatever was wrong with Paul was enough to make people turn away. But the Galatians did not. More than that, they did not treat Paul with contempt or scorn. By the way, the word, the word that is used for contempt here in Greek means to spit at someone in contempt. It isn't simply to say, well, please go away. It is that you spit at someone with contempt. Um, at this point, it's really tempting to imagine what condition Paul had or how he looked or why he looked that way. But we're not told. He knows, the Galatians know, enough said. It is tempting to imagine that the trial to the Galatians was that they were listening to someone who was physically repulsive. So I hear you're going to go hear that guy again man who physically there was something, I would say, repulsive about him, and yet the Galatians did, in fact, listen to him. They resisted the temptation to show scorn or disgust at the, poor, or the state of his poor body. The point is, they did not treat him with scorn. They listened. When Paul preached the good news of Jesus... He was welcomed as someone extraordinary, with an extraordinary message. His physical condition meant little or nothing to them. The implications of this we will see in, in a few moments. Paul continues in verse 15. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. The NIV has... Uh, all your joy. And unfortunately, I think that this is, is not correct. The English Standard Version has, what then has become of the blessing you felt? 
the King James, were then the blessedness ye spake of. Because the word is makarios, from which we get blessed in English. Um, we studied joy in the book of James, and so I think we're maybe perhaps a bit more careful when we read this word. What does Paul mean? I don't think he is referring to joy as we saw it in the book of James. Whatever it is, I think it is, referred, it is connected to the second part of the verse rather than the first. The issue is not how they felt when they heard the gospel, but rather how they felt about how they received Paul. That is, there was a certain amount of self-satisfaction that, you know, this guy doesn't look like much. In fact, he's sort of hard to look at, but we received him and his message with gladness. The New English Bible translates it, have you forgotten how happy you thought yourselves in having me with you? Like, we're blessed, we've got Paul with us. There's a certain amount of self-congratulation. We, we're good people because we don't care what he looks like. Now that has changed. Uh, in going over this, I realized that I painted a pretty bleak picture of the Galatians, almost a cynical picture. Certainly not my intent. I do believe that the Galatians welcomed Paul when many others would not have. That the Galatians did not treat Paul with contempt or scorn. That they welcomed him as someone extraordinary. But that, in fact, had changed. Verse 16. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Why is he now the bad guy? Why have they turned from what he taught? Why is Paul now their enemy? If Paul is the enemy, then who are the new friends? And what are they up to? This is what we find in verse number 17. Those people, these are the men from Jerusalem, are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. The King James has, they would exclude you. And the English standard, they want to shut you out. These people, those people, the men from Jerusalem, have come to Galatia after Paul has left. They've had a double purpose. They want to win the Galatians over to their side, but I think more important, well, that's important to them, but they also want to separate the Galatians from Paul. They don't want them to be a part of the Christian movement. They rather would have them as a part of their movement to be brought into Judaism. They want to shut them out from the fellowship they should have with the apostle and by extension with the rest of the church. What are these men up to, those people? Well, we've seen thus far in chapter 1, they are encouraging the Galatians to desert the one who called them. They are preaching another gospel. They are the ones who bewitched the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 3. They are the ones who said, that there is Jew and Gentile among the people of God. Whereas Paul said the opposite in 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. These are the ones who are encouraging the Galatians to go back to the weak and miserable principles. We saw this last week in verse number 9. They are trying to shut the Galatians out from the truth, from the apostle and from the church. I think this goes back to the confrontation with Peter in Antioch, where Paul's hang, or Peter's hanging out with the Galatian Christians until these men show up, and suddenly he separates himself. 
as much as to shut out these Galatian Christians and say, listen, if you want to eat with us at the big table, you need to be circumcised, you need to keep the law, you need to convert to Judaism. Within this system, somebody gets shut out. It's not the Jews, but it is the Gentiles. But within the gospel, well, what does Paul say? You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These people, those people, the men from Jerusalem, are excluding the Gentile Christians unless they play the game by their rules. Their hope is to get the Galatians to come over to their side, that that they would be zealous for them, that they would stand up for these people rather than for what Paul said. As Paul says in verse 17, they are zealous to win you over. Paul continues, and although it seems that he's switching gears a bit, uh, zealous is the word that connects verses 17 and 18. Look at verse 18. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. And to be so always, and not just when I'm with you. Uh, Paul knew something about being zealous. In fact, he had said something about it in chapter 1. Verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul says it's okay to be zealous, but it's got to be for the right thing. And Paul said before he became a Christian, he was extremely zealous, but not for the right thing. The Galatians are to be zealous for the right thing, a good purpose, and not just when Paul is around. And then we come to verses 19 and 20, in which Paul becomes intensely personal. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Earlier, at the beginning of the section, in verse number 12, Paul referred to them as brothers. Now he says, my dear children. Surprisingly, the NIV has chosen to put it this way, my dear children. Um, it should, in fact, include the word little. My little children. Because the word in Greek is techna, not paideia, which means child. Um, or children. I think perhaps the translators thought that dear would convey this sense, but um, I prefer little because they are little, and he speaks of being in childbirth. Um, I think the NIV people wanted to convey the intensity of Paul's feelings toward the Galatians. But part of it is that Paul mixes his metaphors. So he speaks of little children, and then he speaks about being in childbirth until Christ is formed in you. In some sense, we see a child at three stages here. As an embryo, as a fetus, at the time of birth, and then sometime later as a toddler. In a real sense, Paul views the Galatian believers as mere embryos, not fully formed, delicate, fragile, in need of his protection. And yet one can make the case that this is true at the time of birth as well as while one is a child. Protection is vital. The child must develop, or as Paul puts it here, until Christ is formed in you. 
What does this mean until Christ is formed in you? Well, we saw this in chapter 2. Christ lives in me. the The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Those who belong to the Messiah are in the Messiah. And what is true of them is true of him is to be true of them. The self-giving love that marked Jesus, that he gave his all that we might have life, should mark them as well. But it is an organic process. Again, I think it's because of the modern age, because of technology. We, we are less organic in our thinking. We are much more transactional about our, our thinking. Uh, you know, I do something and you do something in return. It's, even our view of relationships, interestingly enough, I think has become much more transactional. Uh, there's, if you're interested, Mars Hill has an inter- one of the interviews about this, how that Facebook has taken a very transactional view of relationships because that's the way computers do. Computers can't do with, deal with gray areas. It's yes or no. And so uh, I actually do not have a Facebook account, but I have looked at it, you know, where you have that like thing up there where you like. Um, it's very transactional. And, and so we think, well, you know what? When someone says, I believe in Jesus, that's it. They're in. They're, they're children of God. They're going to heaven. Everything's set. They said the right words. They said the right formula. And now they've got eternal life. And there you go. Which is not a very organic way of thinking of things. Uh, Paul says that Christ must be formed in you. It is an ongoing process. In the same way that a child grows toward maturity. So when we put our faith in Jesus, the crucified Messiah... We are to grow. We are to develop. We shouldn't tell Paul, Paul, you just need to lighten up a bit. You need to relax. The Galatians are saved. They said the right words. They accepted Jesus as their Savior. They're in. They're going to heaven. That would be like saying to a woman who had just found out she was pregnant, don't worry about a thing. You're in. It's in the story. It's it's. It's, you just coast from here on out. Well, of course you don't. There is the time of gestation in which the mother carries the child. And then oftentimes through great difficulty gives birth to the child, nurses the child, cares for the child, raises it, till hopefully one day the child becomes an adult, able to stand on his or her own. The mother has a certain sense of protectiveness that she wants to care for the child. She is concerned for the child. I don't want to take this too far, but I almost see Paul as a pregnant apostle who fears that the men from Jerusalem are trying to perform an abortion. They're trying to kill this, these embryos. These un, they're not fully formed yet. Christ is not fully formed in them. And so he writes this in verse number 20. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. Paul wants to be there in person. You know, writing a letter is, a, is a, I would say, a good form of communication, but it's not the same as being there in person. 
Paul wants to hear in person what is going on and what it was that caused the Galatians to begin to drift away from the one who called them. How is it that the Galatians bought into a system that treats them as second-class citizens? And how is it they bought into a system that says Paul's a liar? What Paul told you is not right. How did that happen? I think in the same way that perhaps when a child goes away and then comes back with a different attitude or different views, the parent might say, where, where did you pick that from? You know, pick that up from? You didn't learn that at home. Paul wants to be with them. In our passage, two stories converge, that of Paul and the Galatians. But what is it that connects the two? When Paul first went to Galatia, there was something wrong with his flesh. He had a physical ailment. There was something wrong with his body. And the Galatians overlooked it. They saw him as someone extraordinary with an extraordinary message. They embraced him and his message. They put their trust in Jesus. didn't matter what he looked like, what his body was like. As much as to say his body didn't matter to them. Now he leaves and those people, the men from Jerusalem come. And you know what they say to the Galatians? There's something wrong with your bodies. Your flesh, there's something wrong. Men, you need to be circumcised. There's something lacking in your flesh. And Paul is saying, okay, let me get this straight. I was a mess physically when I came and you didn't care. And you received the gospel. I leave and now somebody comes along and they tell you there's something wrong with your flesh and you accept it? Why would you accept my broken down body and hear the gospel, but now somebody comes along and says, your body's... There's something lacking there. You know, you need, you need to be circumcised in order to be in the family of God in the first class section and not sort of the end of the train. Paul wants to know what happened. You accepted me. Now you do not accept yourselves. Whatever the reason Paul is writing this letter, we need to understand that he had deep affection for the Galatians. Verse 12, he calls them brothers. Verse 19, little children. My little children. He was concerned that Christ would be formed fully in them. In the same way that a woman would protect her unborn child and her infant, her toddler, even her teenager, until the child reaches maturity, Paul is committed to the Galatians that they would continue their relationship with God to know God and to be known by God. I think for us, perhaps we need to step back again and and think, what do we imagine that it's like to be a Christian? Is it a transaction? Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I say this prayer. God stamps my ticket. I'm in. Or do we have a much more organic view? A view of life itself, of developing and growing. And if that is the view we take, and we should, then we should watch out for each other. We should take care of each other. So that if someone comes in and seeks to teach something that is false, 
Or you come up and say, listen, you know, I heard somebody and they said such and such. What do you think about that? You say, no, that's wrong. That's not what we find in Scripture. We need to care for each other as Paul did for the Galatians. Let's pray together. Father, whether we like it or not, we are in fact affected by the culture in which we live, the age in which we live. And I fear that oftentimes we don't have a healthy view of what it means to be your child. I hope that in some small way our vision has been cleared a bit today, that we come to see life as more organic. Christ being developed in us as a process over time, over years. It's a lifetime project. Rather than sort of clicking the like button and say, yeah, we like God. We like being a Christian. In the same way that there was and is a relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. There is to be a relationship between us and you, within ourselves, among ourselves. These things are to be developed. I thank you for Paul's deep and abiding affection for the Galatians, how he cared for them, how he fought for them. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. Pray for those who aren't with us today, particularly for Dan and Lonnie. Keep them safe there in New Orleans and bring them back to us safely. For Titus and Stacy up in San Luis Obispo, for others. Watch over them and bring them back to us. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.